Two and a Half Admins, Episode 3. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And we're back again. And Alan, you've got a couple of things you want to plug up front. Yeah, uh, so we talked a little bit about it last episode uh, before it happened, um, but the published version of the uh, HomeLab panel I hosted for uh, BSD Can is up now, and I put a link in the notes. So if you want to, you know, see us answer questions about running a home lab for about an hour, uh, then check it out. Lots of good information in there on, you know, what kind of hardware you want, what you can do with your home lab, uh, mistakes not to make with your home lab, that kind of stuff. And what's this set ns.live thing? So I got invited by uh, Chris Nova, who does a bunch of Kubernetes stuff or whatever, uh, to talk about uh, ZFS and FreeBSD on, you know, she was just doing these one hour hangout things in the afternoon to have something to do during COVID. <laughs> but we were talked uh, um, about the approach of making uh, the way OpenZFS handles trying to work on multiple operating systems at once uh, and how you try to, you know, make one code base that will run on a bunch of different operating systems, uh, especially with something so deeply integrated as a file system where you can't just rely on, you know, the normal operating system or POSIX abstractions. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, we'll put a link to that as well. Right, so this week, Jim, you wrote an article, Apache 101, zero to WordPress in 15 minutes, was it? Yes. And you are defending Apache's honor, essentially, because Apache has a bad name from a lot of bad tutorials, and people think that it's this old, crusty bit of software, and you should be using Nginx. In fact, the first comment says, this ultimately feels like a lot of work for what you get for free with Nginx. So I wanted to know what you think about this, Alan, as well. Is it just a case of people configuring Apache incorrectly? and people should be using it still? Or is it old hat? Is it this crusty bit of software that we shouldn't use anymore? You know, it's like I said in the article, I think it gets a bad rap. I think it's partly that uh, people don't really know how to configure it. They're still configuring it literally the way that people did in the late 90s instead of, you know, any time in the last 10 years, what's been best practice. And uh, also, it's just it's gotten really trendy to hate on Apache. And, you know, you kind of virtue signal that you're one of the cool kids by saying you use Nginx. Like the article says, the, the pre-fork model is really the problem, not so much Apache itself. Um, and, you know, mod PHP just uh, exacerbates that problem. Generally, the problem is you can only run so many threads of it at once. And if all of them are busy doing WordPress things that are taking a few seconds, well, well PHP is waiting for MySQL to return an answer or whatever. Uh, Apache is out of workers and you can't serve a static image at the same time. So the event-driven model of, of Nginx seems like it's the solution to that. But Apache's always had support for multiple different engines and, and worker setups. Uh, just pre-fork was the default and it, you know, it's just the one everybody, all the tutorials tell you to use because it was the default. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't really make for a fair comparison to Nginx. Whereas, you know, if you use it normally, uh, or in the, like Jim mentions here, and use things like uh, PHP FPM to have the PHP processes be separate uh, and not part of Apache, it means you can have more Apache workers before you run out of memory. And it means that those workers are not tied down in, in the same way while they're doing the PHP. And you don't need a whole worker that has PHP loaded just to serve a static PNG file or, or CSS file. Yeah, that's the big problem. If you're uh, if you're running mod PHP, then you've got a full PHP environment in every single Apache worker. 
So you just can't afford to have enough those enough of those to service all of your PHP threads and serve the static images. Like in my own WordPress blog, uh, if you load my front page right now, it's going to be, um, I think it was 32 static files and one single dynamic PHP execution for that page load. And um, you can have a ridiculous number of pure Apache workers without PHP in there using the event model. But once you run mod PHP and you've got to load the entire PHP environment on each one, it gets a lot dicier and you got to be a lot more careful with your RAM allocation. The ugly thing is, though, you know, it's not even that people are telling you to use mod prefork. They have no idea that what they're telling you ends up meaning using mod prefork. They just tell you apt install libapache2 mod PHP because, you know, that's what they've done since your granddaddy picked beans on the farm or whatever. And by doing that, that automatically disables the actual default NPM, which it has been for the last decade or so, which is an event model, much like Nginx's, and puts you back on prefork because that's the requirement for mod PHP to work. What about official documentation then? Does that not tell you to do it the proper way? I don't think many people are really diving into Apache docs, you know, just to get a server up and get started. They're, you know, they're basically Googling, you know, Apache web server make go now. And, (laughs) uh, you know, the web is littered with these things. And, you know, most of them are very good for what they are. They're focused for exactly what you want to do, like get WordPress up and running and they'll get you there in a friendly way and with a minimum of hassle, the problem is they're just telling you to do it freaking wrong. These guides are at lots of places that have excellent tutorials. They're at Linode, they're at DigitalOcean, they're at Vulture, you name it. And almost every single one of them tells you to use mod PHP. What people don't seem to talk about is that if you do use Apache the correct way, there are some things you get. Sometimes the .htaccess file is actually a useful way to manage subdirectories of a site and so on especially for multi, multi-user hosting, right? Like when, when, I, when it's my server, if I'm using a DigitalOcean droplet and I'm the only user of it, then I can just write the rules in the server config file and it's fine. But the concept of HT access is really powerful for the, the, the kind of multi-tenant type setup. It has downsides. You know, the fact that Apache has to, you know, check every directory along the path to see if there's one there every time you load something. But at the same time, your operating system is also really good at dealing with the fact that you read that set of files a lot or caching the fact that that doesn't exist. So, you know, the performance penalty is probably actually not that measurable just because your OS is good at dealing with that part. If if the site has so much traffic that those extra accesses might be a problem, your OS is going to keep them in the cache and it's not like you're actually going to try to be reading that .ht access from the hard drive every time someone tries to load the page. It's just going to be in the buffer cache. Right. The configuration management for Apache is the thing that I really, really love about it. The Debian developers in particular, like the minute the Apache project had an include directive available, the Debian developers went freaking nuts. They carved the config file up into not just the original hdbd.conf, but you've got all these subdirectories, uh, conf available, mods available, sites available. Each one of those has an enabled counterpart. And so you can have your individual config snippets in separate files where when you want to go modify one particular thing that does a thing, there's one file for it that you can mess with. And then you can just enable it by symlinking it into the enable directory and reloading Apache. And that's a whole lot easier, cleaner, and safer to deal with when you've got a server, especially that's dealing with a whole bunch of, you know, relatively separate sites, 
than having to just mess with one monolithic config file and, you know, A, scroll through it to find the part that you want and B, hope that, you know, you not closing a bracket somewhere in that file didn't break the entire server. So is that not the case with Nginx then? Well, it can be, but either way, no matter which web server you're using, you probably want a separate config file for every site uh, in an include directory somewhere. Now, whether you go quite as far as Debian where you put them in one place and then sing link them to the other place to enable them, it's like, well, I don't really have sites that I have configs for that aren't enabled, so I don't I don't maybe need that level of it. But the whole idea of the kind of .d directory concept uh, where you put all the fragments over here and they get loaded is just so nice. It makes it really easy. Like, you know, Joe, when, when we needed to put a site up for 2.5admins.com, I've just got a script and user local bin on my web server. I can just say add site site name and uh, it does everything. It dumps a skeleton file into a, a new document root. It dumps a new vhost file into Apache sites available. It enables it and uh, sites enabled. It reloads the web server. It does the whole thing. If I was exclusively doing WordPress sites, I would have added database creation automation into the same thing. But uh, yeah, if I say add site domain name, then immediately domain name is available and being serviced from that server. It's pretty great. And it would be more difficult and not as safe to do on a server that used monolithic configs, which most non-Apache servers usually do. All right. But this is 2020. Almost anyone with any sort of serious amount of traffic is using something like Cloudflare or at least CDNs. How does that play into it with Apache versus Nginx then? It just makes the performance aspects of the choice even less relevant because, you know, the majority of your content's getting serviced off of Cloudflare. So barely matters if you're running the thing off of a Raspberry Pi. It can depend a little bit. Like I remember uh, consulting for a newspaper and their problem was they were using Akamai, one of the biggest CDNs out there. And just the load of the Akamai edges coming to their origin was knocking their Windows IIS servers over. Hey, 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 I said Raspberry Pi. No guarantees if you're going to bring Windows into this, Alan. Yes. Well, <laughs> so I put I put a FreeBSD machine with Varnish in front of it. And there was also an Nginx that wrote out static copies of the pages so that if IS did fall over, we'd serve the last static copy that Nginx had managed to write to the disk <laughs> and so on. But to Jim's point, because you can offload a lot of the heavy lifting to a CDN, it means what's easier for you and what makes your management of it easier is more important. And Apache has a bunch more options there. What about using Nginx in front of Apache? So any static assets just get handled by Nginx, but then Apache handles the more complex stuff. Yeah, that's how I started using Nginx originally for hosting, I think it was hackintosh.org when the first iPhones were getting rooted and their site was really popular. And part of the idea was Nginx will take care of all the static files this way. And then it will proxy pass to uh, the Apache, which had mod PHP still because PHP FPM was not really a thing yet. Yeah. Because um, this is like oh, 15 years ago, I think, or maybe not quite that long ago. How old's the iPhone 1? 2009, I think, ish. Anyway, um, and there was two main parts to that. The first was, you know, you get all the static stuff off into Nginx. And the other part was as soon as the Apache worker is done, with generating that page, it sends it to Nginx and then that worker's free to do the next thing while Nginx can trickle that content out to the user who might still be on dial-up back then and 
why have them holding down the, the PHP worker? And it also made the site more immune to things like Slolaris, uh, which was an attack where, you know, you connect and, and ask for, you know, a big file or a page or whatever, and then download it at like one byte every five seconds uh, just to try to tie up all the workers. Yeah. I used to do the same thing with Varnish that you're describing with Nginx. You know, you got the reverse proxy layer in front of your application server and your static content layer. And uh, yeah, it lets your Apache workers, you know, get freed up and, and go on to another task while something much lighter weight, you know, deals with the jackass that's trying to browse your page on the subway on his phone, you know, at like a kilobyte every five seconds. Mm-hmm. But you don't actually need that anymore because if you've set Apache up with the event model, which again is by default, unless you screw with it, that's what you get right out of the box. Um, Apache is already doing that. It's already really lightweight. It's basically exactly the same. Yeah. And PHP FPM is running your workers. Apache is already proxying into PHP FPM and PHP FPM gets to get done as fast as it can execute and then terminate. And then just like Alan said, just like we used to do with Nginx and Varnish is a separate layer, that very lightweight Apache worker thread. Now that's relaying that off to your user on their phone in the subway. Yeah. So if if you have Apache in the event model, it basically conceptually works the same as nginx and uh there's not really a big difference and you know there are advantages to all the modules and stuff you can get uh in apache right so essentially nginx is not needed for a simple wordpress setup then is the conclusion no there's not a big advantage to either one really like yeah it's, it's just up whatever you're more comfortable with which for me nowadays uh is nginx because you know, 10 plus years of, of using it for everything. But if you're comfortable with Apache, it's, there's no reason not to use it now. Or well, I guess there's never really been. You just have to configure it the same way you would have configured it if it was uh, Nginx, which is offload the PHP to the separate FPM processes. So how do you explain the popularity of Nginx then? Was it just the new hotness and everyone wanted to jump on it? Well, at the time when it came out, mod PHP was how you did PHP and Apache and, you know, memory management because every Apache thread had to have that whole execution environment was an absolute bear. So when Nginx comes around and says, you know, oh, hey, we do things a different way. And, you know, now your PHP is just kind of doing its own thing. And we have these extremely lightweight threads. When you set up a server in a bottle with basically just one web server and that's it, rather than these complex, you know, multi-layer environments we've been talking about with a reverse proxy layer in front of an application server and probably a separate static file server. Well, now Nginx looks way better because Nginx is doing just what we've been talking about modern web servers do. It's got lightweight threads and it's got a separate PHP pool, whereas Apache did not. Apache was still saying, hey, here's this gigantic, heavy PHP execution environment that we got to hang around in RAM for the next five minutes while we trickle a CSS file to, you know, this, this person with a bad internet connection. So that sucked, and doing it the other way with Nginx was great. Now, if you had the more complex environment already back then, like, you know, varnish in front of it, well, then you're right back to it probably doesn't matter because you've got the reverse proxy. But these days, the server in a bottle is fine either way. Yeah, if if you go back far enough, it really comes down to the whole concept of CGI in the first place, which was... You know, Apache will see, oh, this special path means it's CGI. So I'm going to actually execute some other program outside of the web server to do the work. And uh, that was often, it could actually be a binary or it was Perl or whatever. But the problem was, every time you start a Perl script, the Perl has to load all of it, this, the whole interpreter and parse the whole script and then run. Well, if you have a busy website, that sucks. So you wanted a bunch of Perl processes sitting already running. And then you just be like, hey, take the script and run it. Uh, and they kind of 
came up with this concept of fast CGI, where the interpreter was already running and you just fed it, hey, run this script in that interpreter. And eventually somebody just hooked that up for PHP. And, and then uh, eventually PHP FPM became a thing. And then mod PHP should have died. It just didn't because of inertia. Well, to be fair, no, mod PHP shouldn't have died because if you actually go through and you benchmark this stuff, if you're doing a purely dynamic PHP workload, mod PHP actually outperforms Nginx significantly. And the event and, uh, you know, PHP FPM model with Apache. If literally all you're doing is PHP execution, you want mod PHP. It's just most people aren't. All right. Well, I want to get you two talking about ZFS, so uh, we better move on. But a quick mention, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way is by email, show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, then go to patreon.com slash 2 underscore 5admins, or all the details for all of that is on 2.5admins.com. So a bit of free consulting then. This is a question that we have had from many, many people. I think Emil was the first to ask it. And it's basically ZFS versus BTRFS, ButterFS, B-TreeFS, whatever you want to call it. There are a number of shared features across the two file systems, but you two are very much in the ZFS camp. So I suppose gloves off, what's wrong with ButterFS? The most illuminating thing for me is every presentation I've ever seen at a conference about ButterFS spends the first 20 minutes trying to explain what's wrong with ZFS or something, or basically trying to defend itself from ZFS. And in all the talks I see about ZFS, nobody ever mentions ButterFS. <laughs> the The part that really sold the, the difference for me was back in 2013? Yeah, 2013, I wrote the, the beginnings of the FreeBSD handbook uh, section on ZFS. And one of the parts I did was demoing how with ZFS, you can make your VDEVs out of just plain files on your disk instead of out of real disks if you want to do an experimental pool or whatever. And so to try to teach people the administrative concepts of how to deal with failed disks or how ZFS can automatically detect and fix corruption, we actually, like, all right, on your in your test VM or whatever, uh, make a machine and you know set up a pool that's made out of these three files, and we'll put them in a RAID Z1. Uh, and you, you know, each file was 500 gigs, and now you can see I have about a gig of usable space, uh, and so on and so on. Now, use DD uh, and scribble out a bu- over a bunch of the data on the third disk. You know, just write zeros over top of a bunch of data that you've saved. And now, run zpool script and watch as it figures out, hey, that's not the data that I put on the disk. This is some other gibberish. Uh, and let me, you know, do the parity calculation and fix your data, and there. Your disk is all the right data is now back on your disk and everything's fine. Or, you know, if you DD over to the disks, uh, it'll be like, oh, there isn't enough parity. Uh, there's too much corruption. Here's the list of files that uh, you won't be able to read anymore because you clobbered them. And then somebody tried it with ButterFS and found out their RAID 5 doesn't work. And I was like, what? <laughs> Now, to be fair, uh, Butter RAID 1 absolutely will do exactly what you're describing. Um, right. You can go and corrupt a file on Butter RAID 1 and read it. And if you look in, uh, you know, var log, wherever your messages are stored, you'll see where Butter detected the parity error and corrected it. The problem, um, <laughs> there are a lot of problems. You know, everybody wants to hit on the whole, like, Butter RAID 5 and RAID 6 don't work. And I'm like, you know, just go ahead and hand wave let. Let's just go and say, okay, those don't work. Fine. 
Um, now let's talk about Butter Raid 1, which the Butter developers and the Butter community say works and is fine. I disagree strongly. Uh, one of the issues with Butter Raid 1 is if, uh, Alan, do you know what happens if you pull one of the two discs in a Butter Raid 1 too wide array? Nope. So what happens is the array goes degraded while it's live, but you know what happens if you then reboot that system? It probably doesn't remember, does it? It refuses to mount it because it's degraded. So it just does not mount that array at all. Now, if that happens to be your boot drive, if you happen to set up your system to boot off of Butter Raid 1, that means your system won't boot. And in order to get it to boot, you're actually going to have to get down to a command line and figure out how to, from that painful little busy box environment, feed the proper force argument, you know, to the kernel to actually mount that thing so you can boot your system. Oh, um, does that sound like a great way to handle a supposedly redundant file system? No. So to explain what Wait, happened- wait, wait. We're not done yet. So this is already not great. Also, when I brought this problem up to the Butter Dev uh, community uh, on the mailing list, I was resoundingly met with, you know, scorn and derision of, oh, well, this is good and you shouldn't try to mount a degraded array. Why would you want to do that? And I'm like, redundancy? I, I get the feeling that ButterFS was written for the developers to use on their laptop and they've never considered production as a thing that people might do with a file system. Okay, but but let's move on. So, you know, we set up this system on a Butter RAID 1 array for boot, right? Boot and root. And we needed to get booted into this thing with a drive down. So we, you know, got down to the command line and we passed it the force argument and we forcibly mounted our degraded array and we booted. Well, now what happens, because we forced it to mount that degraded array read-write, the first time we do that will probably be okay. But if we reboot and force it to mount read-write while degraded a second time... We will permanently damage the array. It will never mount read-write again. And although it will still be available read-only, it'll be at less than a tenth the normal performance. And that's permanent. There's no way out of it. How does that even work? Like, I can't think of conceptually. I don't know, but this has been an issue for like eight years straight now with with no attention and no end in sight. Um, if you don't believe me, feel free to go check the uh, Debian wiki. Um, in their butter entry, when you go down to the warnings, that's one of them. There are many, many more. Uh, butter also offers inline compression, but don't enable it because you're much more likely to wedge yourself into a condition where your file system catches on fire and you lose all your data. Uh, the replication is not reliable. It tends to crash a lot. And here's the great part. What do you think? Okay, so Alan, let's say that I'm doing ZFS replication. I'm sorry, ZFS. Uh, between two systems over SSH and I kill the SSH process. What happens? It depends on the flag you put on the receive side, but either it just throws out the half-finished one or it saves it and generates a key you can use to resume it. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's assume we're talking about a pre-resume ZFS replication. You kill the SSH session. What happens? It marks all that space to be freed and does it in the background and eventually you get all the space back. Right. So what do you think happens if you kill the SSH session uh, on a butter replication? Uh, I'm guessing it's either going to hang entirely or you just that space is gone forever. <laughs> it's actually worse. You're left with half a snapshot live on the other end, and it appears to be there and be functional. And as far as I can tell, the only way to actually figure out what your problem is, is to start traversing that snapshot until you start getting hard IO errors because the blocks aren't there where they're supposed to be. Once you've figured out that that's what happened, now you can destroy that half a snapshot. And at that point, replication will begin working again until the next time the butter receive or butter send process crashes. It seems like the ButterFS devs could work around this by just temporarily calling it, you know, 
Uh, I think in ZFS, you actually, it ends up being called percent receive temporarily and gets renamed to the actual name of the snapshot only once it's finished so that that problem doesn't present itself of, of the system appearing to have, you know, the snapshot with the date from yesterday when that's not actually complete yet. Yeah, I don't know. I do know that if you start talking about Butter's problems anywhere near somebody who's a fan of OpenSUSE, they will get very angry at you and tell you that, you know, Butter has been their default file system for forever and it's awesome and you should just use that. But the thing that they don't want to talk about is they're really just using Butter like it's ext4 on a laptop. Right. They actually do not recommend Butter RAID, you know, any kind of multiple disk topology. They say you should layer it on top of, you know, MD RAID, just like what, you know, Synology and uh, Netgear NASes do or QNAP or, you know, what have you. I think QNAP makes ZFS-based ones. No, you're right. QNAP, QNAP ZFS. Yeah, uh, Synology and Netgear and somebody else are doing Butter on RAID. It's That's fairly common, but... They nerf everything about it that makes it interesting. You don't have multiple disk topology, so you've got no data healing. You don't turn on the inline compression because it's incredibly unreliable. The replication isn't worth a crap. I'm just left with like, okay, at this point, why not just use EXT4? Yeah, or XFS maybe. But what about the licensing? We'll get to that in a second. I have a question. Okay. And I'm sure Jim is afraid of the answer. What would happen to that ButterFS if you then reintroduced the disk that was temporarily missing in your mirror? God only knows. You know, it's 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 deranged gear at that point. Um, yeah. It, once it's once it's gotten into that wedged read-only state, there's no coming back. Right. Uh, there may be some other way to avoid that beyond like never, ever, ever, ever mounting an array missing a disk, uh, you know, read-write, which seems like a really basic thing that you ought to be able to freaking do because every RAID array ever has supported that. That's part of what being redundant means. It's the whole point of RAID is that if the disk dies and my system reboots, I want the system to come up. That's the point. Yeah. That's why I was paying for the mirroring. Yes, which it will not. And again, the better development community seemed to think that I was just an idiot for wanting that. And no, you should absolutely have to feed a force flag to, you know, mount an array when it's missing a disk. And I'm like, uh. Yeah, whereas ZFS will do whatever it can to, to load your array. And, and more importantly, it keeps track. So you can even purposely offline one of the two disks, make a bunch of changes, online the other disk, it'll be like, okay, I figured out which bits have changed since this disk was disconnected, and I will copy only those over, and instead of having to rewrite the entire hard drive. And, oh, look, your mirror's back in sync. And because I have checksums, I know nothing went wrong. I'm so happy that I've got Alan spun up with outrage the same way that I am about <laughs> Butter now hearing this. But Joe wants to hear yeah. about licensing, and... Okay. Uh, I mean, so the answer there is Butter's license is very convenient for Linux users because it is GPL licensed and therefore it can just go in the kernel and that's fine and dandy. Whereas ZFS right now is licensed, you know, under the cuddle, which is widely considered GPL incompatible. Um, and we're kind of in this, you know, uneasy standoff where nobody has tested in court and nobody wants to because there's literally no outcome that would make anybody happy. Either you weaken GPL's, uh, you know, strength by having a judge hand down a ruling that, no, this is totally fine. You know, these two damn things are both open source and the GPL says it wants to advance user freedom. And that's what we're doing. So you can do this and screw you, FSF. Well, now the GPL is weaker. Or, you know, they say, no, you absolutely cannot do that anymore. And nobody can bundle ZFS. And well, guess what? Now you can't have NVIDIA proprietary binary drivers either or any number of, of other things that, you know, you see a lot in industrial Linux. And now Linux sucks more. 
So nobody wants to do that, which is why Canonical eventually just said, you know what, screw all of you. We're just going to start shipping it. If you don't like it, sue us. Well, it's been several years. And I mean, people have made unhappy noises, but as far as I'm aware, like literally no piece of paper with a lawyer's signature at the bottom has showed up on anybody's doorstep, let alone a court case. Yep. So then we move on to the other side of Butter's GPL licensing, Joe, which is that from the perspective of somebody like Alan, who day to day is a lot more concerned with BSD than he is about Linux, Butter's license is a poison pill the same way that ZFS is, is for Linux. Because Butter is licensed to GPL, they can't bring that in kernel with the BSD kernel because if they did that, effectively now the BSD kernel is GPL. It's no longer really BSD. Yeah, and we don't have that problem with the CDDL. What's interesting with the way, the way the CDDL is worded, you can make a binary like the kernel module out of the CDDL license code, and you can license that binary under the GPL, making it compatible to be loaded in Linux. But the GPL has the requirement that the source code be available not under just any open source license. It has to be the GPL, and so it becomes incompatible. Or, you know, that's one interpretation, anyway. The biggest thing I would say is that the the ZFS license, the CDDL, has gotten more companies contributing to ZFS than I've seen you know, how many different companies contribute to ButterFS? SUSE and, uh, I mean, technically Facebook, but that's really just right. because they employ Chris Mason. They didn't have anything to do with it before they hired Chris. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Chris Mason is the founding developer of Butter. But I think Facebook is using it for something. They are. They're using it for several things. But again, they began doing that when they hired Chris. Uh, when mm -hmm. they hired him, they started out using it in uh, just their web tier. So like nothing, no place where a file system was interesting at first. It was just the web tier where if a whole server mm -hmm. catches on fire, who gives a shit, spin another one up, you know, throw it in the mix of thousands and you're fine. Um, they are using it for more interesting stuff now. Uh, my understanding is that um, Butter underlies their Tupperware management system um, for all their processes. I don't really know how data heavy that part of it is. And to the best of my knowledge, again, they're not using any of the interesting features. It's basically just acting like an EXT4 replacement. Um, they do take some snapshots with it, but they have to be very careful with it because butter snapshots are not as performant as ZFS snapshots. And um, it costs you a little bit more to have a bunch of them around in general. And in particular, if you do a lot of dynamic snapshot management, like you take a lot of them and delete a lot of them just during the course of your normal day, uh, you pay a much higher performance penalty as it's monkeying around with all the metadata behind the scenes. Whereas, you know, if you suddenly figure out that, oh, I've got a thousand too many, I'm just going to go back to saying ZFS, Alan, uh, snapshots, and you decide you want to delete them all right in the middle of the day, I'm, nobody's going to notice. It's fine. All right, well, before this turns into uh, ButterFS hate fest. It hasn't already? <laughs> yeah, well, too much of a uh, hate fest. Anyway, we better wrap it up. Um, if you want to send us questions for, well, I say us, let's face it, Jim and Alan, if you want to ask questions to them, then uh, show at 2.5admins.com is the best way to do that. And you can find us on Twitter. I am at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude, like two L's. We'll be back in two weeks.